Titus 1, 1 to 16. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, why don't I pray for us as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that it is true this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us as we look at this remarkable little letter to Titus, as we see what it means to be a church leader and by proxy, what it means to be a church. Heavenly Father, help us not to be crushed by what we read here, but to be inspired, inspired by how we can really live in joy and in hope in the light of the gospel. Heavenly Father, be with us, we pray, as we look at this. Convict us and encourage us through the gospel in your strong name. Amen. Well, as we start um, this new letter, I think it's helpful for us to begin an overview as to what is going on and why we need to read this letter. Now, ordinarily, it would be great to spend a whole sermon on what is going on in Titus and, and a, do a proper overview. And unfortunately, due to circumstances beyond my control, we weren't able, able to do that. So um, we're going to look at this for the first half of our service today. What is going on in Titus? Well, here we have a letter written by Paul to Titus, who is on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And this letter was one of the last letters recorded that he would have written in the Bible, probably around AD 65. That's about 32 years or so after Christ had died and risen again. But Paul here is not writing to a church like Romans or Corinthians. He is writing to one person, to Titus. It is known as a pastoral letter, very much like the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy. These letters, we get to eavesdrop in on Paul writing to one individual church leader. 
Now, Titus was a Gentile, probably from Greece, and it's certain that Titus was a convert of Paul's and someone who Paul would have taken under his wing and, and reared in the gospel, like Timothy was, quite literally becoming his ministry son, if you like. And in fact, that's what Paul describes him. Verse 4 of chapter 1. Paul writes to Titus, my true child or my son in a common faith. Titus is loved by Paul. He's a close companion of him, someone who has walked alongside him and grown under him in the gospel. And so as we glean from other parts of the New Testament, Paul and Titus head off to Crete and to other islands in the Mediterranean um, on a mission trip. And because of the gospel fruit of that mission, and and because Paul has to return back to Greece, Titus is, verse 5 of chapter 1, left behind in Crete, so that he may put what remained of that mission, that is, brand new converts to the gospel, to put them into order and appoint elders of every town as directed by the apostle himself. Titus's role, therefore, is to establish the church in Crete, And this letter is Paul's instruction manual of how he is to do that. But before we look at Paul's instructions to Titus, we have to remember the timing of this letter. Paul is fairly old at this point. In fact, Paul is not far from being imprisoned in Rome, where he will die. He is probably quite aware that he isn't going to last much longer. And these last pastoral epistles of Paul are not just interesting, they are foundational for us as we sit here this morning in Chalmers Church. You see, the age of the apostles is literally dying out. The last generation of established, trained men, appointed by Jesus himself, is going to be no more. If ever there was a weak point in church history, it is right here. If the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not entrusted to godly, well-taught men, if it is not guarded and protected and handed over to the next generation with care and with clarity, then the church is in fear of having no foundation on which to build for the future. So the role of Titus here is of extreme importance. This moment in history is the first handing over of the gospel baton, and it must not be dropped. And so it makes sense that Titus's first priority in this embryonic church is to find and build up godly church leaders who will take the gospel seriously as they live in the light of the gospel and as they pass it on to a new generation. And therefore, it makes further sense, doesn't it, That before we even get to the instruction part of the letter from verse 5, in verses 1 to 4, Paul reminds Titus of what this gospel, what this baton looks like. In other words, before Titus is to do anything, he is to be reminded of the essential foundation for his ministry. That is the apostolic gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's read those first three verses again together. This is the gospel. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. Now, I have found the book of Titus incredibly timely as ever. I realize we say that a lot when we're talking about the sermons we preach from the front. But but think about it. With Andy Robertson having finished this very week, 
to go and establish a church in Dundee as Roger Day gets ready to arrive the week after next. As Chalmers goes through this wonderful change of handing church leaders on and welcoming church leaders in, as Alistair leaves, as maps come, and as both Andy and Roger, specifically, both those men, stand before a congregation within a week of each other and become ordained, both as elders and as ministers of the gospel, what is it that will be preached over them on those days? It will be the gospel. Not strategy, as good and as necessary as that is. Not finance and procedure, as helpful as those things are, it will be the gospel. And as recognition of that, as Andy and Roger get fully ordained as ministers of the gospel, as they become Titus-like in their ministries, I guarantee you that they will be handed one thing and one thing only by the person who ordains them, and that is a Bible. That's the baton that's being passed on to them. That's the baton that is being passed onto Titus. And this is Paul's point in these first four verses. The only tool you'll really need, Titus, to choose and build up Christian leaders and to build up the church is the apostolic gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is this gospel? How does it work? Well, Paul mentions four things which we're going to look at really quickly as we look at these first four verses. First of all, verse 3 It is a gospel of preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. In other words, whose gospel are you preaching, Titus? Not man's gospel, but God's gospel. A gospel that is, verse 2, not of this world, but has been promised before the ages began. Furthermore, this gospel has been entrusted to Paul. And who is Paul? He is, verse 1, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. In short, he is not just anyone. He has been handpicked by Jesus Christ himself to carry this incredible message. In short, the gospel I preach is the gospel of God. In other words, this isn't Paul's opinion. It isn't a man-made philosophy. This is the gospel of God entrusted to an apostle from before time. Titus, you can trust this gospel I hand on to you. And this is helpful for Titus. If anyone comes and preaches a gospel that starts with, I have a new revelation from God, or if anyone preaches in another man's name, that is not the gospel of God. Secondly, this gospel is not focused on the here and now. It is focused, verse 2, in hope of eternal life. This gospel does not speak of having the good life now, in other words. It is not a self-help manual for how we build up better lives. It is about hope of future resurrection, perfection, and glory. And this is helpful for Titus. If anyone is preaching a gospel that says you can achieve perfection and sinlessness and, and, and not having to suffer now, then they're not preaching the gospel of God. Because as much as this gospel does promise wonderful things in this life and does change our earthly experience in many incredible ways, this gospel is ultimately about hope of an eternity to come in the midst often of real suffering and pain. Thirdly, this gospel is, verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. How is it normal unbelieving people are going to be transformed into followers of Jesus? Through the gospel, which gives physical knowledge of the truth. That is, it tells people who Jesus is and what he achieved. But more than that, it produces faith. 
Faith in Jesus Christ as people through the power of the Holy Spirit put their trust entirely in him and are born again. This is helpful for Titus. This gospel is about spiritual transformation. It does not just produce people who know a lot of things about Jesus. It doesn't just produce scholars. It creates entirely new kinds of people. God's people. This gospel, in other words, is all about conversion. If anyone is preaching a gospel purely to put forth their own ideas, then they're not preaching the gospel of God. If anyone is preaching this gospel with no intention of seeing people changed or converted, then they are not preaching the gospel of God. And what does this spiritual transformation look like? Well, fourthly, and finally, this gospel is, verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with or leads to godliness. And this is where we get to the real heart of the entire letter. Because how is the gospel going to be passed on through the ages? How is the gospel going to win converts? How is the gospel going to bring about spiritual transformation in normal people through the church that is marked by radical gospel-induced godliness? It is through the living out of the gospel in radical godliness, in the face of real godlessness, that the gospel is going to become visibly attractive in the world and utterly distinctive as it draws people in so that they can hear the gospel being preached. God's goal, therefore, for the church is to be radically godly, to be boldly distinctive. God's goal for the church is to adorn the gospel. The gospel is from God, focused on the hope of eternal life, to be preached for the conversion of souls in order that they might go out and live lives of radical godliness. And that is why gospel-focused, godly church leaders are vital to the life and growth of the church. And that is the whole purpose of the letter of Titus. Upon the essential foundation of the apostolic gospel, Titus, you are to, chapter 1, choose and build up godly church leaders so that, chapter 2, they can live out and teach the true gospel to the whole church in order that, chapter 3, the whole church may live lives of radical godliness so that they are, chapter 3, verse 1, ready for every good work. Or more succinctly, find godly church leaders that build godly churches, that adorn and proclaim the gospel. That's Titus. And so Titus's first job is crystal clear. Find and train godly church leaders. And this is where Paul's instructions kick in. Who is ready or who should be a church leader? Well, first, Paul says a church leader is to exemplify godliness. Verses 5 to 8. Now, where Paul speaks of elders, we can correctly translate that as as elders, as we would know them in our church and in the Presbyterian tradition, but also church leaders or pastors and ministers, those who have oversight of a church family and those who are preaching the gospel. That is what's going on here, church church leaders. And this stuff in 5 to 8 is tough. As I was saying in my prayer, we, we can be quite demoralized for it. And it is sobering, this list. Consider what a church leader is guarding. He's guarding the gospel. It should be sobering and serious. But it's also inspiring, isn't it? What an incredible list of things to aim for. 
A church leader is twice, verse 6 and 7, to be above reproach. In the NIV, I think the word is to be blameless. This doesn't mean, of course, that they're going to be sinless. Being above reproach means that there is no glaring error or damaging trait that anyone can see in that man which is in deep contradiction with the Bible. Being above reproach means that there's no position, whether in public or private, in which that man will be found compromised. It must be that a church leader is living with integrity, publicly and privately, so that any part of his life can't be up for accusation. He should be battling sin, repenting daily, living a clean, circumspect life which is visible, tangible, and open, and which bears all the hallmarks of doing good works in the gospel that people can point to and comment on easily. And to help us with what living above reproach looks like, Paul shows us what it looks like. Verse 6, he is to be a husband of one wife. Now, it is not that an elder or church leader needs to be married. Not at all. Paul wasn't. But more fundamentally, it means that they are to be living a sexually clean life. There's a lot to be said for the fact that a church leader's sexual relationship is put first in this list. By far and away, heartbreakingly, the sin that has the most devastatingly destructive impact on a church is when a church leader or an elder has an affair, whether married or single, or whether a church leader's marriage breaks down for other reasons. It rips the heart out of a church. Paul is talking into a context where most men that Titus would be wanting to lead will be married. And Paul also is talking into a context the same as in any age of human history, which is charged with a sexual reality that contradicts the gospel. And so it makes sense that Paul says that the church leader is to be marked by his attitude to his one wife and the way he conducts himself in the area of sex and relationships. And sticking with the man's family, Paul then says that the church leader's children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In short, a church leader should be able to keep his family and his children in good order. Again, it is not that an elder or a church leader is meant to have children, but that those who do, well, their children are to be well taught and not utterly wild. Now, this freaks me out somewhat. <laughs> I can see you all like grinning at me. Principally because Toby, all of 19 months, is quite wild. And also, if I'm really honest, he is quite defiant sometimes. And that's what panics me is that you see that. But that's the point. You're meant to see how he behaves. That's the point. Furthermore, you're meant to see how me and Jen deal with that and deal with him. Now, Paul is not saying that our kids should be perfect or at a young age, they're not going to be a handful. And if they're seen at making a scene in, in public, then you're cut off from public ministry. That That's not what's going on. But it does mean that the children of a church leader should be disciplined. It means that they should be coming to church. That's what Paul means when he says they should be believers. They they should be showing signs of faith. They should be sitting in the covenant community of the church, listening to the gospel being preached. Church leaders who are fathers should be sitting down with their children, reading the Bible with them regularly, teaching them what is right and wrong, disciplining them, not treating them as mini-gods, not spoiling them. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If I can't keep my own children in check, 
If I can't look after them, if I can't discipline them in the Lord or teach them the Bible, how on earth am I expected to do that with a congregation? In fact, this is exactly what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5 in his list of requirements for eldership, which are exactly the same. Paul says this, an elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he be able to care for God's church? Makes sense. His family is a test of leadership, in other words. Titus, as you choose your leaders, look at his family life. Look at his marriage life. That will tell you a great deal about how he is going to look after the church. Also, and this is important, the word children here in the Greek corresponds to small children, not adult children. Once they come out from under the family care, the reflection of their behavior, for the most part, is on themselves. There are many, many godly people who I could name, who we all know, in strong public gospel faithful ministries, whose adult children have have rejected the gospel. And that's devastating, and that's heartbreaking for that person. And that comes with real prayer on behalf of the father and the mother. That's not an indictment on the church leader necessarily, especially someone who has spent all their lives teaching them the gospel. That we leave up to the power of the Holy Spirit and to the Lord as we continue to pray earnestly for them and speak to them about the gospel. And that's the point. Are we, as fathers and mothers, are we actually teaching our kids the gospel? Are we reading with them and are we disciplining them? And and if we're not, why not? This is a serious business. And before we move on, for those who are single, the same qualifications still apply. Can that person organize people well? Is he reliable at work? Is he concerned for those in the church who are under his care? These things that are seen in the family can be seen in everyday life. And a future church leader who is single will and should display in his dealing with people and his loving people the same qualities that a husband and a father can. But it is not just family life that is under scrutiny for the church leader. It is also his public persona, verse 7. An overseer, another name for elder or church leader, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. In other words, just as a church leader's family life should be under control, so should he be as a person. His temper, his power, his strength, his attitude, it should all be in check. Again, many of us struggle with some of these different things to greater or lesser extent, especially perhaps in regards to being quick-tempered or even emotional. We're all aware of our own failings here, me very much so, as I speak of these things to you as my close church family who really know me, even at my worst moments. This is a vulnerable passage to preach, and rightly so. That is not an excuse for a church leader. It absolutely cannot be that a church leader is verbally abusive or arrogant or lording it over people or taking positions of authority to satisfy a hunger for power or indeed seeking greedy gain, i.e. doing the job for money or demanding payment for religious services rendered for fleecing people. A church leader cannot get away with being addicted to anything, whether it be drink or anything else. 
Again, the man himself is a test of leadership. Can he conduct himself well? Can he not just discipline his children, but can he discipline himself? Can he lead his own heart in the way of the Lord under self-control? Indeed, that's what Paul turns to next, verse 8. Rather, a church leader should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. The counter-opposites of verse 7... He is to throw off verse 7 and put on verse 8. These things listed here are the normal, everyday good works that Paul talks about all the way through this letter. Self-control, self-discipline. They should be evident. Being hospitable, that is, making people feel very safe around you to the point where they feel that they are at home with you. Another of good, a glorious catch-all term for delighting in everything that comes from the Lord. Loving Jesus, in other words. And self-discipline. This is an interesting thing. I have a funny story about this. Um, I remember doing a seminar at a CU house party a couple of years ago on how to maintain good daily quiet times. And after the seminar, a CU leader, a confident, lovely guy, uh, fully loved the Lord Jesus, I'm sure, he came up to me and he said this. He said, oh, when I do my quiet times in the week, I always make sure I miss one day out, or maybe a couple of days, because I don't want my quiet times to become legalistic. Well, that's nuts. Reading your Bible every day, even forcing yourself to read the Bible every day, that's not legalism, that's discipline. Quite often we don't want to. Quite often I have to force myself to get up and open the Bible and and pray. Because it does me good. It's discipline. Legalism is when that half an hour with the Bible or whatever it is, is my thinking that it saves me and it's made me a good person in God's eyes. That's legalism. A church leader is to be self-disciplined, working hard and loving all that is good. In summary, very simply, a church leader is to exemplify godliness publicly and in all areas of his life. Because the truth is, if he doesn't, then the presentation of the gospel is marred. And if he doesn't, then the church itself will be at risk of failing because it is not being built on the essential foundation of the gospel. And that's the point, isn't it? A church leader is to exemplify godliness, not so that the church may exemplify godliness, so that the world may be attracted ultimately not to the church leader, but to the gospel. In other words, don't switch off until chapter 2, those of you who aren't church leaders per se, because this list is also meant for you. However, Paul continues, secondly, a church leader is to expound the gospel, verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. We've already spent enough time looking at what this apostolic gospel is this morning, but Paul keeps coming back to it. Remember, we have this, this relay race going on. The baton of the gospel needs to be handed down, and so it must be taught in its entirety to the next generation of the church. But on top of that, the truth is, as we know, it is not enough for the church leader to live a good life. There are many people we know, many non-Christians we know, who live wonderful good lives, but they are to preach the gospel, which leads to godliness. That is, a church leader is to stand in a pulpit before a congregation or before his small group every week and instruct people in the gospel as detailed in verses 1 to 4. That is, every week he is to say the uncomfortable things, 
the things that are not acceptable in the world, the things that will irk his congregation, the things that will convict, the things that will hurt, the things that will fly in the face of the perceived wisdom of the world. Every week he is to hold out the word of life and light and power and transformation and joy and hope and peace. And he is to do it unflinchingly, carefully, with godly seriousness as it has been taught. Not watered down, not exaggerated, not inflated, not with caveats, exactly as it is. And this is hard. As Bruce Thielman famously said, to preach, to really preach, is to die naked a little at a time every week and to know that each time you do it, that you must get up and do it again. Preaching the gospel is hard. That is why Paul often uses the term hold firm in regards to the gospel message, as he does here because it is very readily pulled out of a preacher's grasp if he is not keeping himself in step with it, if he is not keeping himself immersed in it. Have a weak grasp on the gospel, in other words, and due to the pressures of the world, it will be snatched away if you're not careful. We don't need to look very far in this nation to see many church buildings filled with lovely people, led by lovely people, but where the gospel is not being preached. And therefore, the people in those churches aren't being transformed, and they're not living lives of godliness as much as they are living lives of religious morality. And that won't get them anywhere. Certainly not anywhere in eternity. We don't need to look very far either to see good men of the gospel after years of strife and flag, having tragically let go of the word of God as it has been originally taught. The truth is our godly living is only as good as the gospel which underpins it. No matter how attractive I might be to the rest of the world, if I am not telling people the gospel, they are not going to come to know Christ. But as hard as holding firm to the preaching of the gospel is, it is also the most gloriously exciting thing anyone can be involved in. What a joy it is to preach this gospel for the church leader. This is where Titus 1-4 to is so helpful. Titus, this gospel is conversion. That's what it's for. It will transform lives for eternity. What a joy. So expound it. Preach it in its redemptive entirety. Hold firm, says Paul, to these new church leaders, to the gospel is given to you. Preach it. Teach it. Instruct people in it. In short, tell people through the gospel how they can be transformed into a new person who will live not lives of religiosity, but lives of godliness, wrapped up in the joy and hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. But finally, and very, very quickly, you've done really well. Paul says, don't just preach it, refute those who oppose it. Point three. A church leader is to expel gospel error. Nine to 16. Listen to the end of verse nine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Church leadership is a double-edged sword. A church leader must preach the gospel on one hand and expel gospel error on the other. Look at what's going on in Crete in these last few verses. Verse 10, there are people who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. People from the circumcision group mainly, that is people who are saying to the churches, to the Christians, that they should live under the old Jewish covenant law and keep it to gain salvation. 
Titus says church leaders need to refute this in their churches. Indeed, verse 11, they must be silenced. This false gospel shouldn't be given any airtime. There's no room in the church for anything that isn't the apostolic gospel. These men are upsetting whole families with their teaching. Anything that isn't the gospel brings discontent and disharmony. It leads to living which is in stark contrast to the godly living that the gospel brings. Furthermore, the gospel should be used to rebuke and correct. Don't be frightened, Titus, to challenge the mindset of the natural Cretan. That's what's going on in verse 13. Rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. The church leader, in other words, should be unafraid of challenging the cultural specific difficulties and baggage that a person brings when they come face to face with the gospel. Don't let people people be okay with their own areas of sin that are so culturally ingrained that they don't even notice them. Call it out. Rebuke and challenge. Not to lord it over them, but so that they may be sound in the faith that leads to godliness and an eternal future with Jesus. It is for the eternal soul of the person and the truth of the gospel that you expel gospel error. Therefore, those who preach anything that does not resonate with verses 1 to 4, anything that does not fit within the framework of the apostolic gospel, get rid of it from the church. Silence it. And sometimes for the church leader, this is harder than speaking the gospel. To stand up against the church itself sometimes, against the popular but heretical teaching, it is tremendously difficult. And this is not just a job for certain men who are specifically called to take on certain heresies. It is a task for every single person who is a church leader. In other words, when, we are, when you are sitting down with your small groups, called, focused on a Thursday night, when you are doing one-to-ones, when you are talking to your children as leaders of your families, you expel gospel error. Lovingly, gently, carefully, wisely. Absolutely but deliberately, earnestly, and without shame in the true gospel. The very last verse of our passage today, we see the following words looming over the end of this opening chapter as a warning. And with them, we come right back to the main theme of Titus. Verse 19. These false teachers profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In short, these men are not living lives of radical godliness. Therefore, they are not the church. They do not carry the gospel because they are not living gospel-induced godly lives despite what they say. And Paul's point is, that is how you recognize the true gospel-inspired church. Through what they preach and how they live, the two of them together. The warning is, of course, we can profess God with our mouths but not live in the light of the essential foundation of the gospel. Conversely, as we've said before, we can look good, but we are not followers of Jesus. That is the consistent daily call and charge of the church leader, to preach the truth of the gospel, promoting it and defending it, and to live publicly in the light of it. He must do both. Well, how do we finish? Well, remember the essential foundation of the gospel We can get to the end of this passage, whether church leaders or not, and think this is just so difficult. And it is in some respects. But living this way is beautiful, as we'll see next week. Remember, the gospel saves people for an eternity with Christ. The gospel is a beautiful thing to adorn. 
And living this way is not like living in a cage. It is gloriously freeing. Not living under the fear of sin, not living under the fear of accusation. Why would we not, as church leaders and as church, not want to strive to live this way? Take seriously to heart what living a godly life looks like under the grace of God. Whether you're a church leader, especially if you are a church leader, or whether you aren't. This, as we'll see next week especially, is the way of living for the entire church. Are you living a life that is above reproach, full of integrity, not given over to addictions, not abdicating responsibility in the home or at work? Are you adorning the gospel? To those of us who are church leaders, are we seriously, seriously, night and day, living out the gospel? Repenting daily and striving for godliness? Are we preaching the full gospel? Are we refuting gospel error? Are we adorning the gospel? And to all of us in the light of this, are we praying, therefore, for our church leaders? Having the responsibility under the Lord to hold the baton of the gospel and to look after the church and to hand it on to the next generation, living out the gospel in an unreached people group, as Scotland is called now, building up God's church, that is hard. And it is fraught. In the light of this passage, let us pray for our church leaders and elders as they are entrusted with a great responsibility here in Chalmers, across Scotland, and across the world as they publicly live and speak the truth of the gospel. Let's do that now. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you so much for these words. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be inspired by them. Heavenly Father, I also pray for those of us who are church leaders that we would really take this very seriously, that we would be living out and enjoying the gospel of grace that we are now allowed to live in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that through our actions and our words, through living out the gospel and speaking out the gospel, we as a church, we as individuals, would promote the gospel and would encourage people to come into church and listen to the gospel being preached. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would make the gospel attractive. And Lord God, forgive us when we don't do these things. We are sinful people, and we have to live in daily repentance. We are under your incredible grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. But help us, Father God, to continue moving on in holiness, knowing that our good works don't save us, but that because we are safe in Jesus Christ, because of the gospel, we can go out and we can adorn it and we can tell other people about the wonderful news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us, we pray, in this area. Lord, we do pray for our church leaders. We pray for Robin. Lord, we pray for all the elders. We pray for all of us who take leadership. Please, be with them all. Encourage them in the Lord and strengthen them in the gospel, we pray. In your mighty name, amen.